It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Author Luis Alberto Urea's latest book about a Mexican-American family is inspired by his own life and his relationship with his eldest brother, Juan. House of Broken Angels draws from Juan's fight with cancer and his last birthday party thrown by his family. We were at this, my brother's funky little house in a funky little neighborhood in south of San Diego in the backyard and throngs of people were there. Ahead, Urea talks about how his relationship with his brother changed his life. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Words, a literary program of the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The New York Times titled its book review of House of Broken Angels as, at readings, Luis Alberto Urea is making his fans cry. And that's exactly what he did in March during a presentation in Aspen, Colorado. He reads from his book, By Memory, but mostly he talks about his own life and family who migrated from Mexico to San Diego decades ago. The book does dip into politics, with Urea expressing frustration about how America treats Mexican-American immigrants. He told Time magazine, immigrants aren't evil snakes, and immigration is actually a statement of love for country. Here's Urea's presentation, which will make you both laugh and cry. Buenas tardes, Aspen. Tijuana in the house. I'm so glad to be back. Aspen feels like home away from home. So thank you for having me here. I, uh, I don't want to overstay. Once I get to preaching, you know, the spirit comes on me and I can't stop. So I'm going to watch my watch, have a timekeeper. So let's begin. I come from a dirt street in Tijuana. Some of you know this already. Carrampa Independencia, the ramp of independence. And the neighborhood was called Colonia Independencia, which means the colony of independence. There's a theme here, right? Good for a writer. Um, my dad was Mexican, and my mom was from New York City. A uh, strange little pairing there, which I don't have a whole lot of time to tell you about, but I'll tell you a little bit about it. And um, it has bearing on this novel. The question that always percolates through audiences when I show up places to talk. And the question is, why do you look Irish? <laughs> so, so um, my family's originally from Sinaloa State, down the west coast of Mexico. Um, yes, the birthplace of the narco wars, and yes, the home base of Chapo Guzman, but uh, from way before then, where my family lived. And my grandmother, who was the matriarch, of course, of the clan, um, was named Guadalupe Murray. She was red-haired, blue-eyed, apple-cheeked, Irish-Mexican lass. And my grandfather, Juan Urrea, was Basque. Basque is not in Spanish. Ba you know, Basque is its own language. And if you ask people from the Basque lands, one of the current popular thoughts is that we are actually from Atlantis. 
because there's no actual linguistic link between Basque and, and other known Romance languages or whatever. So they say, well, we're Atlanteans. <laughs> but in Basque, the word urea means golden man. So also a bubble-looking geneticist. And they created this genetic experiment, which is us. It's kind of, everything went awry out of Sinaloa, and this bubble-looking family came out. My mother, on the other hand, was, you know, from um, classic pilgrim stock, and her family settled in Virginia, and uh, she was kind of a late Victorian. She was born in New York in 1916. Her mother was a southern lady with her, with her Virginia ways, and owned a, 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 an antique store in Manhattan. And one of the clients there was Albert Einstein, which I think is cool. My mom's uncle called him Al, which I love the thought of him being Al. And uh, one of the clients was John Steinbeck. So I always, I always tell people, I feel like the writing fairies got me before I was born, you know? Steinbeck gave his blessing. My mother had been in World War II. She was in the furthest forward combat group of women in the war. She was in the Siege of Bastogne. She was in the Battle of the Bulge. She was a, a, a Buchenwald liberator and then was nearly killed in a terrible accident after the war and the last days of the war after the liberation of Buchenwald. So when she came back to New York City, she had a really difficult time fitting in. And she was kind of a blue blood, you know, sort of a socialite. And um, several of her friends, they were Red Cross women, had gone to San Francisco, California to get over some of their war experiences. And she joined them. And uh, she became a jewelry buyer for uh, the iMagnon stores, which are, I think, pretty much gone, if not completely gone now. But if you knew my mother, you would know how perfect this was for her because my mother loved nice jewelry. <laughs> and um, she had certain ways that I never comprehended. Certainly people in Tijuana, when she ended up there, didn't understand her. And people in the Mexican barrio where we lived didn't understand my mama. But um, you might. Some of you may have known a woman like her, but you know, she liked to wear white gloves always. And she sometimes wore a little hat, sometimes with a little veil, one string of pearls, a charm bracelet, everything she'd ever done, <laughs> everywhere she went. She thought she was in Vogue magazine at all times. She thought she was a model, so she had this pose, and she smoked Betty Davis style. And then, you know, she had lipstick on her little cigarette. And if you said something witty, she would take a puff and she'd say, oh, darling. <laughs> and uh, she did really weird stuff that the Mexicans could not comprehend. <laughs> Nothing new. They don't comprehend things up here right now. But my mother had old-fashioned ways, and she would serve coffee, in her mind a real treat, in demitasse cups. And I'll tell you right now, in case you know, you're having all kinds of cross-cultural experiences, don't serve Mexican people coffee in a little tiny cup. <laughs> they would sit there looking at each other, 
It, you know, they, they thought she'd gone to a dollhouse or something. And they'd say, esta loca. And then she had those, you remember those old silver spoons with a point so you could get segments of grapefruit out? My relatives were terrified of these things. So my parents came together because my father was on the presidential staff of Mexico. He'd come up through the military. He'd been a poor boy in Sinaloa. Didn't get his first pair of shoes till he was 13. He was Errol Flynn looking. He had kind of red hair, bright blue eyes. Um, started silver mining at the age of 12. At the age of 14, had to help amputate someone's leg in the mine. Had real effects on him. He got in the military and was promoted and sent to Mexico City, where all my siblings were born. And uh, he had an interesting time of it. Again, not enough time to really tell you the story, but he ended up on the presidential staff. And uh, they would send my father to the United States accompanying generals or politicians because they thought it would be good to make gestures to the United States back in the 40s and the early 50s, particularly after, you know, President Cardenas stole all the American gas stations in Texaco and stuff and made Pemex. They thought that might have made the Americans mad. Maybe we'll, you know, make sure that these generals have a, uh, an American-looking accompanist. So my dad flew to San Francisco, and my mother, was working in an iMagnon. And they decided at the Mexican consulate to have a party for the generals and the politicians. And back in those days, witness the Mad Men show, it was even before that, they decided we need beautiful American women. So they called the iMagnon store. Could you please send beautiful American women? And the manager basically went to the jewelry buyers and said, ladies, we're going to go see Mexicans. Let's go. <laughs> so they all carted to this party. And my dad worked his charms on my mother. And, uh, you know, love blossomed. And then he used political graft to have his romance with her and flew back there as often as possible. In the interim, he had abandoned a family that she didn't know about. Was macho, you know. Muy mexicano, my dad. And he was then given an order by the government to do something heinous that he would not do. And um, once he refused the order, then he had to be smuggled out of Mexico City. My grandparents had left Sinaloa and moved to Tijuana because my grandfather was a 33rd degree Mason. And he was a high-level Rosicrucian, which I really don't understand very well. But they went to start the big lodge in Tijuana. And um, they hand-built the house that my family and I lived in later. So my dad moved in with them and then went up to San Francisco and married my mom at City Hall and sort of forgot to tell her they wouldn't be necessarily moving into the presidential palace of Mexico City. My poor mom kind of thought there would be a lovely hacienda 
right? The Urea Hacienda with mariachis and charros. Beautiful horses, maids, butlers, Anthony Quinn, Gilbert Rowland. And he swept her away to Rampa Independencia. Dirt street with a stinky outhouse. And it was hard. She had a really hard time. Anyway, I came to the U.S. because I, the, the neighborhood was overrun with tuberculosis and a lot of the children died and I was dying. And so my parents brought me to the U.S. and um, we couldn't afford anything but a barrio near the border. But that's where we settled. Still very difficult for my mother, as you can imagine. Um, and I, 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 I'm going to take one moment just to tell you what kind of a culture clash it was for me. I haven't told other groups this story, but I thought you'd appreciate it because it's so strange. Um, and maybe you'll know why I'm a writer if I tell you this. So my mom and dad, their marriage turned bad right away. And we had a little nasty apartment in a block of apartments in a neighborhood where it was brown versus white versus black. Savage warfare, whatever block you were on. And I spoke Spanish before I spoke English, so I came out of Tijuana, talking Tijuana. I had the Tijuana accent. Some of my relatives still talk like this, okay? That's how I talk. And I talk Spanglish too, right? So a bike was una bica, and that dude's wife was una wifea. <laughs> peanut butter was la peanut butter. Um, and I always say my, 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 my kitchen was the United States. My mother called me Lewis. To her, I was Lewis Woodward, one of her relatives. And in the living room, my name was Cabron. My dad was very Mexicano. And there was a, a war always between them because she wanted me to be more American. He wanted me to be more Mexican. So I was raised twice at once, which was really hard for me. But now I thank God for it. But my father was always gone. He'd go. My mother didn't drive. So Halloween comes along. That's mom and me. And we don't have any money. And she says, dear boy, because she called me dear boy. And I was supposed to call her mother dear, <laughs> which got me beat up in the street. <laughs> yes, mother dear. <laughs> so um, she says, would you like to go trick-or-treating? I said, oh, yes, mother dear. I'd love to go trick-or-treating. And she said, well, mother can make you an outfit. What, what do you like? And I said, I love Casper, the friendly ghost, Mom. <laughs> now, you have to understand that the entire apartment block that way was African-American. <laughs> I don't even need to tell you, do I? So poor Mom. Safety pins a white sheet on me and takes a pillowcase, yes, and cuts out two eye holes. It's like a Flannery O'Connor story, huh? And she pulls it over my head and off we go. And all the trick-or-treaters are stopping. And I went to this gentleman's house, and I knocked on the door. African-American gentleman opened the door and just stared at me, said, what the hell are you supposed to be? And I said, Casper the Friendly Ghost. 
And he just went, okay, kid, just wait here, I'm gonna get my wife. And she had to, And he came back and they both looked at me, hmm. And I gotta tell you though, I mean a moment of grace, because this book, it's all about grace. He says to me, you know what kid, before you go on, you know what's even scarier? And I said, what? And he said, a ghost with a people face. Pull the, pull the, the top off and just go in the sheet. It'll be really scary. He didn't have to do that. He saved me. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Looking for another author talk? A few episodes back, we featured U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith in the podcast. She talked about what it would take to love others in a truly generous way. Love is the animating force of the universe, and compassion is what we're here to embody. That's been a really consoling mantra to have in the back of the mind during, you know, an age when that's the opposite of what we hear most of the time. In her recently released book, Wade in the Water, she looks back at moments in history where we, the human race, failed to choose compassion. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas to Go in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. You can also find a link in our show notes. Back to our featured conversation with author Luis Alberto Urea. So anyway, I was the first one to go to college and all those years when I wanted to be a writer, I started discovering writing. Thank you, Leonard Cohen, you know, thank you. Ray Bradbury, Richard Brodekin, Bob Dylan, Jim Morrison for the dark side. Um, when I was writing in notebooks, my half-siblings were in Tijuana. And I didn't see them that often. My father liked to keep the families a little bit separate. And um, my eldest brother, Juan, was a reader. Both Juan and my dad, my dad started this, learned English by memorizing the dictionary. Five pages a week. And I survived that because I had to give him his English tests. And I can tell you, if you don't want to be a kid in grade school giving an angry Mexican dad smoking Pall Mall's English tests, because <laughs> he's glaring at you. Dame el examen, pues, hombre. Okay, dad. Um, Papa, what's an aardvark? Oh, and then he'd go into it. Es un animal, nariz larga, se come hormigas. I'd say, yeah, that's good, good, Dad. <laughs> so Juan loved to read. And he had stayed in touch with my dad where the other ones hadn't necessarily. And he would send his old paperbacks to me. And that's how I found Ray Bradbury. Came to me and I thought, holy cow, this is amazing, right? So Juan always took a very serious interest in my life and my future. And he always used to say, you're going to be a big star. I'd say, yeah, because I thought I was going to be Steve McQueen, you know. So I was like, yeah, that's right. Um, 
And I was the first one to go to college, like I said, and he was always there. My father died during my college years. So Juan became the patriarch, and I think he took a fatherly role with me, just trying to keep a hand on me and help me, help steady me, because I was a little wild. And um, one of the blessings of my life was that after my father died, Ursula Le Guin came to our school as a visiting scholar, and she saw a story I'd written about him, and she took me into her workshop, and then she coached me. Ursula actually made me a writer, an author, <laughs> anyway. She trained me how to do all this stuff um, and then published it. So it was my first sale. So I just want to say, in light of the story I'm going to tell you now, that knowing that my dad sacrificed his life in some ways, I don't have the time to tell you the story, but he did. He gave me what matters. He started my career. And my mother, too. We were left with nothing after my father died. And my mother, for Christmas every year, would give me a strip of stamps, hoping I would submit one more poem or story to one more lit magazine. Yeah. So Juan stepped up. Juan was there. And through some bizarre set of miracles, I was hired. <laughs> once I graduated, um, to teach expository writing at Harvard. Um, I'm even embarrassed to tell you that because it's just so outrageous. <laughs> People don't believe me. And Juan orchestrated a farewell Mexican dinner. All the relatives came. And he, none of them comprehended learn, studying writing. I can guarantee you right now, if I told them at home what I'm doing, they'd think the same thing. He said, Luis! His handwriting is so beautiful. He's going to go teach rich people how to write beautiful. I was like, mm -hmm. that ain't how it works, bro. And then he gave me this blessing to explain to them what it meant for me to move to Boston from the border. He said, today, Luis goes from frijoles to Boston baked beans. So I'm sticking with that. So three years ago, no, more than three years ago, maybe five years ago, I was walking. We live outside of Chicago in a really pretty little suburb. Ain't nothing like Aspen or Woody Creek or Carbondale, but it'll do. And my daughter and I like to walk along the river. And my phone rang, my cell phone rang. And I looked, and it was the family. And I don't know if you're like me, but if you get an unexpected call from the family, you don't think, yippee, you think, oh, no, right? I, you don't know. And I answered it. It was my niece. And she said, tío, tío, my dad wants to talk to you. And I said, okay. And I thought that was weird. And it was Juan. And we have this word, carnal, carnal, for brother or friend. This was the flesh of my flesh. He said, carnal, I have to talk to you. And I said, what's going on? And he said, I've got cancer. I said, uh, what? He said, I've got cancer. And I sat down on a stone wall in the woods. Um, and I said, what kind of cancer? He said, it's in my bladder. I don't think it's good. They're going up inside me and pulling out the tumors. And I don't think it's good. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, what am I supposed to do? And all I could think to do, I said, you know, do you know about Facebook? And he said, no. I said, Facebook is like a social media thing. And I said, I've noticed... Because he's very competitive, he was very competitive with, 
Americanos, you know. I said, I've noticed Americanos, when they get sick, mention it on Facebook and other ones pray for them. You want me to do that? And he said, yeah, I would like that. Okay, so I put it on Facebook. My brother's sick. would appreciate your prayers. He got 150 strangers praying for him. And he went into remission. And if you know Mexicans, you know that means everybody was like, Luis is a curandero. <laughs> right? He made a miracle. But he got sick again. And this time it was worse. And we did it again. I said, let me, let me, let me get the people going. And we did. He got 365, I think, total. They, made, they formed a group called Team Juan. Some of you may have been on it. I don't know. They made a logo for him. And it was, of course, Catholics. They're doing rosaries. They're doing novenas for him. They're lighting candles. That was cool. Then there were Protestants. He thought that was interesting. And really hardcore evangelicals who just wanted him to get away from the influence of Satan. And Jesus could. So he thought that was interesting. And then some of, you, some of you atheists weighed in, and you were like, we're sending you good thoughts and light. <laughs> he was down with that. <laughs> Buddhists, you know, were wishing him a good journey to the afterlife. And um, Wiccans, which really excited him, because one of the postings was like, we will meet sky-clad beneath the moon and ask the goddess. And he was like, wait, wait, wait. There's people dancing around naked for me? I said, yeah. <laughs> and he got better. And the third time, he was extremely ill. And uh, it was in his lungs. And he was actually on his deathbed in the ICU. And we live on tour so much. And we were driving through California on our way somewhere. And I had to go see him and bid him adieu, which was impossible. He was in the bed. And you have to understand about my brother, he had a very strong sense of pride and a, and a good, strong ego. Um, and he was a self-contained man. He didn't kiss people. He didn't ever hug me. He never said, I love you or anything like that. But he had his ways. And he was lying there in bed. And he would become lucid sometimes and then fade out. And I was sitting on the bed with him. And I said, Garnan, I have to go. I don't want to go. Should I cancel my appearances? And he said, no. No, you're working. We work. Go do your job. And I just, I didn't know what to say. And I said, you're my hero. And he said, still? <laughs> I said, yeah. You know, and left crying. And uh, phone rang days later, week later, I don't know. And it was her again, Meili, my niece. And she said, Tio, how you doing? And I said, Meili, what's the news? And she said, what news? I said, the news about your dad. What about him? I said, how is my brother? Oh, he's fine. He went home. <laughs> I was like, will he never die? <laughs> but he couldn't keep it up. He could, his body was broken, and he was small and getting weak, and I think he knew it had moved into his bones. I think he knew. I think, in fact, he knew pretty much the date. He just hadn't shared it. So he was coming up on his 74th birthday, and one of his granddaughters, they called him Pops, came up with this idea. Why don't we give Pops a birthday party, man, and everybody can come? 
unspoken message, his last birthday party. And when he heard about this, his ego lit right up because I know him. He thought, wait, I can have a wake and attend it. And I can not only attend it, but direct it and make everybody tell me how cool I am before I leave, right? And that's what they did. And um, the, the little twist, which is in the novel, even though it's fictionalized, it's about a fictional family, but I think you'll see these stories in it. His mom, not my mom, but his mom, was turning 100. And she died the week before his birthday party. And he was so irritated. It's like, Mom! Mom, really, you know? And the family has, not a wealthy family, so they couldn't afford to keep coming to San Diego. So he, since he was the patriarch, he orchestrated everything to be on the same weekend. Her funeral, Saturday, his party, Sunday. Pretty dense little experience. And at the party, I just want to, the only, the phrase I've been using uh, on this insane tour, we've been on a city a day for a couple of weeks. It's, it's, I, it's, it's a blessing, but it's crazy. Anyway, um, I call it the Mexican Finnegan's Wake because we're at this, my brother's funky little house in a funky little neighborhood in south of San Diego in the backyard and throngs of people were there. Neighbors, relatives, friends, strangers, every kind of Mexican you could imagine there at the same time. And Chicanos, there were Cholo lowriders there, there were PhDs there, there were grannies there, there were working men there, there were a couple of dragged in white folks there, there were a bunch of Samoans there. People were like, who's the Samoans? Like, they're our cousins, whoa, you know, welcome. And my brother's sitting in the middle of this in his wheelchair watching it all. And I sat down next to him. And it looked like the wedding scene in The Godfather. <laughs> Except not as nice clothes, you know. And uh, he just sat there and people came and kissed his hand and knelt and thanked him and gave him little tiny gifts and would give these impromptu speeches about how he had changed their lives. And I was watching this man counting literally his last days and realizing that so many things were broken, so many things were left undone, and you're going to die feeling like you didn't accomplish things. And then he finds out he changed the world. Oh, he liked that. <laughs> and at one point I said, Carnal, you're like Don Corleone. And he said, I am Don Corleone. <laughs> but he was weak. And they were taking him back to bed during the long party. It went from the morning till late at night. He would have to go lie down. And when the first time they took him to lie down, they came and said, Theo, Dad wants you. So I went back there with some trepidation, and I, I, I looked in the room, and he was in his bed in his pajamas, sweat socks on, my little tiny brother. And he patted the bed. And I said, what? And he said, come on, get in bed. And I said, you want me to get in bed with you? And he said, yeah, come on, get in bed. So I climbed in bed with my brother. And we were lying there, you know, listening to all the hubbub and he showed me all his meds and all the hundreds of pills he was taking and certain pills he hated, so he was hiding them under the bed so nobody could find them, because what did it matter? 
And it was just this moment until he said to me, I've been thinking, carnal. And he said, you know, if you turn 74 years old, means you have only seen Christmas 73 times in your entire life. And he said, that's not very many. So, you know, I was trying to keep up my macho cred by not crying. Just, yeah, sucks, man. <laughs> and uh, he asks me, he says, Oye, carnal, do gringos kiss? I said, what? He said, the Americanos, do they kiss? I said, like in movies, you've seen them kiss? No, hombre. In families, do they kiss each other? And I said, I guess, families kiss, right? Kiss your mom. And he said, moms don't count. If you don't kiss your mom, you go to hell. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I've seen people kiss. I've seen siblings kiss and dads kiss kids and stuff. Sure. Oh, yeah, brothers kiss. And I said, you want me to kiss you? He's like, no. <laughs> nah. Yeah. I kissed him for the only time in my whole life on his forehead. And uh, we were like, yeah, that was okay. It wasn't so bad. No, was <laughs> anyway, the party went on, and these wonderful things happened all at once, and many of them really inappropriate and really funny to me. And um, they sang him Las Mañanitas, the Mexican birthday song. And it was devastating because the entire yard sang and they wouldn't stop, and they kept singing it over and over and louder and louder. And one of the details that to me is very endearing, I don't know how the family feels about it being in the novel, fictionalized, but still, they'd forgotten to get him a birthday cake. So that morning, they're like, oh, dang, we didn't get the cake, dude. <laughs> so Cynthia and I had to go get the cake, and it was at Target, and it was like, you know, Valentine's Day, so the cakes were all pink and purple. <laughs> I love you. And so we got a pink and purple one, and then a chocolate one with red roses on it. And he hit both of them, paper, little plastic forks, you know. And then he went to bed, and uh, that was the end of the night after a whole lot of hubbub. And as we were leaving, I had to go say goodbye because I, I was on my way to Dallas. And when I walked in his room, he said, don't say goodbye to me. And I said, okay. He said, never say goodbye to me. And I said, all right, I won't. What do I say? He said, tell me you'll see me next time. And I took his hand, and I left. And by the time I got to Dallas, he was dead. So I went back and buried him, joined in the funeral. And he did a couple of things that were really magical which I also fictionalized in the book. He was so thoughtful. He was insanely in love with his wife, insanely obsessed with his wife as though they were still teenagers. And uh, she was older than him, but she lied to everybody, you know, but to him, she was just this blossom of, and he arranged on their anniversary after he was dead for white flowers to come. And the florist card was handwritten by him. And then on her birthday, a letter she has never shown anyone came in the mail, handwritten by him. No one knows what he said, but she just came apart 
And of course, Mexican family, we all figure Juan actually did it somehow, right? He's, he's in heaven sending postcards. You are listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Aspen Words is the literary program of the Aspen Institute. The program holds talks with authors, like the one you're listening to, and hands out a major literary award. The first Aspen Words Literary Prize was awarded today. It recognizes works of fiction that reflect contemporary societal issues, like immigration and incarceration. The winner of the prize is Mohsen Hamid. He won the $35,000 award for his book, Exit West. Find a long list of all the books that were up for the award, including the winner, in our show notes. You can also find the list at aspenwords.org. Here's the rest of Urea's talk. So now that the book is out and all hell quite uh, is breaking loose around it, um, they're like, yeah, you see what dad did? He helped Uncle Luis write that book. <laughs> and then he's getting all these book reviews for it. He's making people go. Yeah, he's doing all these. He's, he's directing the tour, which gets a lot of pressure off me because I'm just like, there's something they don't like. I said, hey, your dad told me to put that in the book. <laughs> so I fictionalized it and tried to create a family that would represent all our families. And I was thinking about the great immigrant epics that we've grown up with. And I thought, you know what? It's time for my folks, my Mexicanos, to join this. My family's been living and working in San Diego area for 70 years, 60, 70, 75 years, voting, having kids. The kids all speaking. They don't even speak Spanish, a lot of them. At the funeral, they wouldn't eat Mexican food. It was all spaghetti, pizza, and KFC. <laughs> and I thought, you assimilators. <laughs> so that's what I did. I, I, I tried to, to write that book. And, um, man, you know, we've gotten really blessed so far with it. So, you know, I'm thankful. I thought I'd show you one little chapter because I know, did it just get lighter in here? <laughs> Juan did it. <laughs> Um, when I talk about the book, I don't want it to sound like you have to, you know, when you get done, kill yourself, because it's not that kind of book. Um, it's as uproarious as it could possibly be, because the family is. I think we are as people. People are funny, even in, and maybe especially in dire circumstances. But also as the political scene got harsher and crueler, um, and the racial scene got harder and harder, um, I also thought, you know, I, I have this writing rule I use with my students, which is laughter is the virus that infects us with humanity. And if we laugh together about things, how can we walk away and say that person's an animal? It's not possible. And I think tears are the same way. So I tried to put plenty of both. And uh, partially the crying part was because you lovely Ladies, I'll say that because there's a couple with dudes, but lovely ladies with your book clubs <laughs> having us to lovely houses, fantastic dinners. Don't make beans for me anymore. Make something else. But I do get sangria, 
I get margaritas, which I like. But the book clubs always tell me, you know, we really like to have a good weepy book. So I was like, okay, get a box of Kleenex this time, because that's trying to service my readers better. But um, yeah, so there's a moment later in the book, and I, I've cut this down, um, a story I've told before in sort of folkloric form, but I'll give you the chapter. Um, and it's called Parrots. And it's a moment later in the book when the brothers need a happy memory because mortality is upon everybody. Um, and they tell this story. They remember this story. So the setup is very simple. Big Angel is the older brother who's dying. He has a half-brother named Little Angel. And because their father was a playboy, he didn't remember he'd used the name once before, so he used it again. <laughs> and Big Angel's mom lives in Tijuana and comes to San Diego once a month to disapprove of everybody's housekeeping. She inspects it. Um, and Dad forces Big Angel to go get her. He's in San Diego working on a green card. And dad also forces Big Angel to come collect his little brother because dad doesn't want him to give up his Mexicanness. And he figures, you know, a monthly dose of Tijuana will be good for the kid. And this moment that I'm going to share with you comes from a true life moment in my own life when Guadalupe Murray decided to become a border smuggler, my gangsta granny. And this is it. I do it for you from memory instead of reading it from the book because readings can get boring. So this is how it goes. Big Angel drove the old rambler up the rampa. The dirt street was completely choked with boulders and jagged stones sticking up out of the dirt and he had to go very slowly because if you hit those stones hard, they could tear the oil pan out of the bottom of your car. They pulled up to the yellow house on the side of the hill. In front of the house was a six-foot-high cement wall. Embedded in the top of the wall were shattered Pepsi-Cola bottles, points up in case any evildoer in the neighborhood decided to come steal her girdles. They let themselves through the fence and stepped into the parlor of the house. She wasn't in evidence, however, in the corner, a wrought iron birdcage stood on four legs. Inside was the De La Cruz family's parrot. In those days, all Mexicans had a little green parrot. It was a national rule. And the parrot sat in his cage all day. He himself was rather an egomaniac. They had named him after themselves, Periquito De La Cruz, Little Parrot De La Cruz. And he spent the day arguing with himself in a mirror, looking eye to eye at this bird saying, Periquito, 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 Dejos! Periquito, 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 Dejos! <laughs> he was involved in this ruckus when Mama America came out of her bedroom. She had a little canvas bag with clothing and a red pocketbook, and she stopped and observed him and said, ah, el perico. And she said to Big Angel, mijo, I told you before, we should start a negocio 
We should buy green parrots here in Tijuana, take them to San Diego, and sell them for 100 times what we paid for them here in Tijuana, because all those poor Mexicans up there, they don't have parrots. You're not a Mexican if you don't have a parrot. And he said, Mama, I told you a hundred times, it's illegal to smuggle parrots into the United States, okay? The boys should have taken it as a harbinger when, as they stepped out the door, she said, we'll see. <laughs> so they got in the car and started down the hill very slowly and carefully, and she turned to Big Angel and said, mijo, I want to go to the fruit market before we go to the border. And he said, mamá, I told you, just like the parrot, it's illegal to smuggle fruit into San Diego. And she said, did I say one word about taking fruit? I just said I want to go to the fruit market. Y me vas a llevar. He said, si, sí, mamá. He looked back at his little brother who was looking over his mad magazine with big eyes. They headed east instead of west toward the border. Many went to the fruit market, a famous spot in Tijuana, still famous to this day. A big parking lot surrounded by old rattletrap buildings. And in the parking lot, on the blacktop, trucks loaded with watermelons, sugarcane, chiles, potatoes, onions. Shirtless men with rags tied on their heads carried 100-pound sacks of beans around. The blacktop had a shiny inch of shellac made of vegetable and fruit pulp and juice squeezed into it by decades of truck tires. Big Angel parked and opened the door for his mother. She got out and took her red pocketbook and headed off across the parking lot. The boys followed and suddenly felt a bolt of terror when they noticed she was heading for a little shop with a sign that said bird seller. <laughs> she walked up to the shop and laid her purse on the workbench in front and she called the young man, Joven, Joven, do you have little green parrots? He said, pues claro, señora, yes, of course. Do you have very tame little green parrots? Oh yes, I raised them by hand. I need the sweetest little parrot, the most, el más mancito que hay. ¿Me lo traes? Sí, señora, claro. He went inside, the two brothers just stood watching. He came out with a green parrot on his finger. It looked quite pleasant. He transferred it to her finger. And she looked at it, it looked at her, and she began the demented Mexican grandmother talking that they use on babies, little dogs, and parrots. Ay, qué guapo. Mira qué guapo este periquito. Ocho, ocho, ocho periquito. She started making weird clicking sounds. He got very excited. He fluffed up his feathers and then fluffed up his head a little bit and began posing for her as she spoke. She kept this up and she reached into her bag and she pulled out a glass bottle and she put it down on the workbench and unscrewed the lid. It had an eyedropper with a long nozzle. Little Angel said to his big brother, are we in trouble? His big brother said, I don't know, let's watch. 
She held the nozzle above the parrot's head and she said, Oh, abre la boquita, andale mi rey, abre el pico, andale, open your little mouth, come on. And he opened his mouth and she squeezed three clear drops in it, put the lid back on the bottle and said to the boys, It's tequila. <laughs> the bird began looking around. And his head began to sway. Soon his whole body was swaying. And he toppled over backwards. And she caught him in her hand. He lay in her hand with his little feet up in the air. Snoring parrot snores. And he, she set him down on the work table. Went back in her pocketbook. And got a sheet of a newspaper out then took the little parrot, laid it on the newspaper, and rolled him up, his tail down in the pointy part, and she lifted it up. It was a parrot-flavored snow cone with a green head sticking out of the cone. The three boys in the place were just agog. She then horrified them terribly by looking around, opening the front of her dress, Inserting him very carefully, she used her thumb on his head <laughs> to nestle him in there. And then she adjusted herself and she said, let's go to San Diego. <laughs> Big Angel drove, of course. He was driving very carefully because he was terrified of what might happen to him. His little brother was in the back convinced they were going to federal prison. Mama, cool and collected. In those days, the border wasn't the border we know now. It wasn't high tech. There was no tech. It was a series of wooden shacks with incredibly bored and very hot federal agents from the United States sitting on stools. The car pulled up very carefully to this agent's shack. From the back seat, all that little angel could see of the agent was his stomach when he stood up big panza in the window. And then it moved back a little and a huge red face bent down and looked inside and said, Hola amigo, tiene papelas? And Big Angel said, green card. All right, buddy. Señor, usted tiene papelas? Visa. Thank you, man. Look back at the kid. What about you, buddy? I'm a US citizen. He stood back up. The one ritual question always asked at the border in those days was, amigos, tienen licor in the trunk of El Caro? <laughs> it's scientifically proven that 78.1% of all the drivers were smuggling liquor. Every single one said, no, senor. And then the agent would say, that's good. Go on in. And they'd enter the United States. He stood up, asked the question, everybody denied the liquor, and he began to turn to the next car. They all breathed a sigh of relief. The hand came up, it was about to wave them on. Little Angel watched the stomach rotate. Three quarters of the way, when the parrot awoke. <laughs> it was almost in profile when suddenly, 
Then the protest began. The stomach rotated again. The face came back down, was looking around the car. Unfortunately, this was when Mama America's bosoms began moving. He stared, big angel stared, little angel looked around the seat. She looked at the agent and she said, isn't this interesting? Ten years later, Little Angel saw a movie that he remembered for the rest of his life because it always reminded him of Grandma America. It was called Alien. (laughs) (laughs) And at that moment, the evil green head began rising and churning and it stuck its head out, was trying to bite everybody. And she said to the agent, I don't even know what's happening right now. (laughs) With a pop, it erupted out of the front of her dress and began flying hysterically around the inside of the car, little green feathers everywhere. The agent was like this. Mama never broke a sweat. She just calmly rolled down her passenger window. The parrot shot out of the car. And in that moment, two Mexican boys, Mexican grandma, US federal agent, as one watched the bird enter the United States illegally as it flew north. <laughs> Luis Alberto Urea's latest book, House of Broken Angels, was released in March. In total, he's written 17 books. His 2005 book, The Devil's Highway, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Urea's presentation in Aspen was part of Winter Words, an author series held by Aspen Words, a program of the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow Aspen Words year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Words. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. The Aspen Words team is Adrian Brodeur, Jamie Kravitz, Carolyn Torrey, Elizabeth Nix, Marie Chan, and Ellie Scott. Our theme music is by Jim Brunsberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. That's our show for today. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.